Lisa Author is the Deputy Director of Curatorial Affairs and the William and Mildred Lasden Chief Curator at the Museum of Arts and Design. Previously as a visiting associate professor at the Bard Graduate Center, she has published widely on diverse topics, including the history of modernism and its relationship to craft and the decorative, the material culture of the American counterculture, and feminist art. Her monograph, String, Felt, Thread, The Hierarchy of Art and Craft in American Art, focuses on the broad utilization of fiber in art of the 60s and 70s. Her most recent exhibition for MAD is Surface Slash Depth, the decorative after Miriam Shapiro. Exhibitions she has co-curated include West of Center, Art and the Counterculture Experiment in America from 1965 to 1977, Pretty Slash Dirty, a retrospective exhibition of Marilyn Minter, and Improvisational Gestures. A feminist public intellectual, author founded and co-directed for the past 10 years for the program Feminism and Company, Art, Sex, Politics at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Denver. career as a curator you've been attracted to arts which was on the the edge of visual arts or on the border things just tell us a little bit about your educational path sure sure so I started out as an academic I pursued a PhD in modern contemporary art um, and my dissertation research became the basis of my first book which focused on uh, the hierarchy of art and craft in American art and I look specifically at um, artists in the late 60s and 70s across the art world using the medium of fiber for the first time in ways that began to push against the boundaries that we um, know of as you know art and craft and sometimes even art craft and design so there were feminist artists who were involved in that uh, process of dismantling that those boundaries or deflating them there were artists associated with the post-minimalist and process movement such as Ava Hess and Robert Morris and then there was a large number of artists who began as weavers and then uh, attempted to remake themselves as sculptors using fiber as a primary medium and they were all working with these materials in very different ways and with different intentions but collectively they created a, like the art world that we're in today where you have artists who move much more comfortably between art and craft especially when it comes to textiles which have really sort of exploded on the scene in the past, um, I would say, 10 years, but definitely in the past five years, you know, you've seen amazing contemporary work in fiber, and it's not—it's it, really not seen um, within that world anymore as like a lesser medium to work with. So that was the research that I did as a graduate student. Um, that became the basis of the first book, and then I spent oh many years as an academic received tenure and then started doing um, curatorial work, um, ex curating exhibitions. And I was again attracted to these kinds of marginal practices or historically practices and materials that had been excluded, let's say, from, from the higher world. So the next project that I did, which um, was a big exhibition with a book, was on the American counterculture um, in the 60s and 70s and like creative practices that um, emerged out of, the, uh, out of the counterculture with the intention of um, like rebuilding civilization from the ground up. And there were a number of artists involved in that. 
um, who worked collectively, but craft and things that are handmade um, play a huge role in, in that, that um, movement as well, or that period of time. And it's also a social practice. It's like a lot Yes, yeah, it's highly, like craft is highly politicized within that, that, that realm um, as something that allows you to build civilization from the ground up. And, and you, you have like a merging of art and life too, because uh, a lot of these artists that I looked at uh, were working and living collectively and um, and and like there's in some cases let's say the sculptor or the painters and sculptors that that founded um, a commune like Drop City in southern Colorado with dome building community they saw that building that architecture and then the way of life that they wanted to create through that as an extension of their artistic practice or their sculptural practice so you have a conflation of, of like art and life very interesting and goes far beyond like an avant-garde understanding of um, um, the merging of art and life that you might see coming from East Coast circles mm -hmm. maybe out of um, you know like Rauschenberg um, mm -hmm. or, or other artists who it was in a museum yeah who, who sort of you know it's been I think it's always been like an avant-garde mantra in some way art into life um, but within the American counterculture you really see it um, taken to an extreme right where the yeah. art object disappears as, as such. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's like a scaffolding, and yeah. then yeah. But the thing is the life itself. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I always like, and it's a well-known quote, but not exactly related to that movement, but the Oscar Very cool. Wilde quote that he puts his genius into his life. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So it's a beautiful idea. So that's when you were, well, along, you were born in Arizona, uh -huh. and that's when you were right doing that when you were in Yeah, I was San in Denver. Francisco or um, well, yeah, so, yeah, so at the time, when I was working on the counterculture material, the book and the exhibition, I was in Colorado, um, and it, that was a project that really did focus on the West um, and to try and bring that, that work into view. It's easy to ignore, like I said, it does dissolve itself into life and it has not, you know, from art history as a discipline, which is organized around examination of objects, like it doesn't necessarily have a place there because there was almost nothing to see. Like that object-based analysis was uh, is hard to do um, in the counterculture context. And so part of the project was just to make it that those practices visible and of course to talk about the legacy because there's a tremendous legacy in, in like social practice um, work today and uh, you couldn't really trace it. it needed to be traced historically I think back to this this um, these origins and then the other thing is is that it, it is often not perceived like that type of work is not perceived as political so it's both like non-object based it's not art and it's also not political enough and so this was mm -hmm. also uh, a, a project that insisted on the, like the political um, content of making those choices like as an artist or like a um, decision about how to live etc like it's not just a, a cultural it is like a form of cultural radicalism I guess that was like my argument there so because a lot of this material is also fallen out of counterculture histories mm -hmm. um, yeah. about the left right because it's a different form of politics that they're interested in so this attempted to put it back on the map in both um, the history of the counterculture and then also the history of art. And I think it's a, a beautiful idea and it it seems strange, although uh, our attitudes towards it are changing, that we would not value something as much or know how to value something that is 
about changing lives. I think yeah, life yeah. is a work of art, right? Right. Yeah, I think that's just hard for when when you have a discipline that's organized around activist art that's um, um, like object based and has a message. Um, mm-hmm. It's directed in a way to look at work or practices that are about transforming the self, which is, was also very prominent um, mm-hmm. in these cir- countercultural circles, that can look apolitical, right, mm-hmm. or not serious. But for these artists, transforming the self needed to happen. So there's like a consciousness raising that has to happen. And then um, that creates the basis for moving into politics in lots of different directions. But um, it's easy, I think it's just been easy to dismiss that as, as um, uh, like some kind of cultural lunacy <laughs> or not serious, um, not political enough, right? Because it doesn't right. look like real politics in quotes. Uh-huh. Um, but like that transformation of the self and what could come from that uh, was really front and central for um, a lot of these artists uh, working um, in the counterculture, either through uh, craft and the handmade, or um, a lifestyle choice that's been that's been made to to um, like reduce the division between your work and your life. Um, mm-hmm. All of those things matter to them a lot. I like to think also about and this. It it's very strange what people will talk about it in terms of design, which is of course what mm-hmm. you're doing mm-hmm. here at the museum. But also, um, I like to think about. Even so, it's very strange what people consider worthy of the term art mm-hmm. or an artist. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, maybe stretching the um, definition, I felt like that's one of the aims of our project, is that uh, education or teachers uh, can be artists. Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, and conversations with people, notable artists in many different disciplines, they go back to their teachers mm-hmm. or those, the mm-hmm. communities they work in mm-hmm. and how that so I, I, I think it's something that we have to think about how we can like honor these disciplines that might be mm-hmm. like less honored or invisible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and also just going back to the po- your point about um, what counts as art. So if there's an overarching question that I think I ask a lot, it's that question. Like mm-hmm. what counts as art? Who makes that decision? How is it maintained and then transformed over time? Who polices it? Like those are really yeah. interesting questions. Because there's a money attached to it. Does it make right. it more? Sometimes I would think if there's not money attached to it, it's more. Yeah, pure. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the other big part of my research um, portfolio or agenda, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, has been uh, feminist work, yeah. especially feminist work that looks at craft, other kinds of uh, like um, domestic. A work we might associate with the domestic realm, and then um, this issue of the decorative, like what counts as mm-hmm. decoration versus what counts as, as art. Um, and there, that's a fascinating story as well. Um, and again, it's they, they're a really good example of a group of artists who um, politicized craft um, as much as anyone else in you know, the late 60s and 70s. So I'm thinking of artists like Judy Chicago or Miriam Shapiro, Harmony Hammond, Faith Ringgold. There's more, but, you know, they, they kind of form a core. Um, and so they were very interested in these, these um, well, first of all, the hierarchy of art, the art historical canon, how you might make interventions um, in those structures, and 
thereby expose sort of the exclusions of those those um, the canon or, or the hierarchy. And so for them, it was just about looking at like, what do women do? Um, and how can we tell a different story of art um, by focusing on that material? And a lot of it is handmade. A lot of it also has to do with, with fiber, which is why it ended up, a lot of that work ended up in, in the, the first book, String Felt Thread. So, um, and I continue to work with those, um, those artists in that time period. And then and you curated a show with yeah, Miriam Shapiro. Yeah, recently yeah. I did this show with Miriam Shapiro, and, and it also looked at legacy. So, you know, um, her adoption of the term decoration as a provocation, you know, where does that term exist in the art world today? Um, in her day, of course, it was a, a very dirty word to apply to art. In some circumstances, it still would be. Um, but the artists, that, the contemporary artists that I brought together, a much younger generation, were all like embracing it um, as a political tool in their work. So that's fascinating to see um, uh, from the point of view of her, like her origin point going forward. And then, so for about 10 years, for full, yeah, for a full 10 years, I co-directed a, a public program um, with a colleague, Jillian Silverman, who's in the English department at University of Colorado. And this was a program that, it was called um, Feminism and Company, Art, Sex, Politics. And it was a way to, like the, the vision was like, how can we look at creative practice, or how can we look at issues of women and gender through creative practice, through the lens of creative practice? And then how can we bring together people across feminist circles who otherwise usually don't share a stage to kind of jumpstart a conversation for a public audience. So we would uh, put together, we, we would look for people from the art world, from the academic world, from the public um, or uh, like uh, policy sector. We would look at um, filmmakers, performance artists, like you name it, we would come up with, with a theme that was big enough to bring these people together. And um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Uh, oh gosh, I should have. <laughs> it's been a while since, you know, we, we had our last, um, our last series was 2017. And, and you've been doing a lot. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's uh, when I think about it, there's probably like 50 programs over those 10 years, and then well, you maybe have I should go you to have four to five to people, <laughs> four to five contributors for each one. I mean, it's a tremendous amount. And I have some. I think I've got some cards here uh, from back in the day, and I could look at them. Oh, I don't know where I put them now, but like you know, we would do a do something on. What's a good example? Well, we'd, we'd label one bitch, right? And then we would have like um, a filmmaker who is working with the some aspect of that word in visual form. We would have, um, I think we had a performance artist working with us. And then we would bring someone from say the business sector like a woman, uh, an executive, um, to think about how that term is applied to women mm -hmm. in, in positions of power. Like, that yes. would be sort of how it would happen. And it, it would seem, I think from the outside it looks weird mm -hmm. because it is a, a kind of collision of mm -hmm. different voices, but that's exactly what worked for us in terms of creating a broader and much more dynamic 
conversation for a general public. It's an educated general public, but they're not academics and they're not scholars and they're not there to um, sit and listen to a lecture or mm -hmm. some other kind of research sharing format that you might find in the university, like the panel discussion. Like, mm -hmm. It just doesn't work for a public audience. But you do have people who are intensely interested in these issues. So we could create something that was playful but also serious at the same time. And that really worked for, for our audience. Um, another example, this is gonna seem weird too, there was one called Horse Love. And we <laughs> had, was this? Yeah. <laughs> so we had like a sociologist who worked on the way that women's relationship to horses is very gendered, okay. um, especially in the media. Yeah. And then we had Miss um, Colorado come, or like, a, what was her name? Not Miss Colorado. It was like the rodeo queen of Colorado, oh, okay. right? She was there. Um, and then we had someone who... Oh, we had a large uh, animal vet who specifically worked with horses. And she's like a very well-known acupuncturist around the country mm -hmm. for horses. And then I think we might have had one other... Oh, we had an artist, too, who worked quite a bit with like fantasy, horse fantasies, mm -hmm. right? Um, especially young girls fantasies about horses and like mm -hmm. the collecting of, of those briar horses and all that sort mm -hmm. of thing. It was amazing. It was mm -hmm. a really amazing program because again, you brought all these people together um, who had different relationships to these animals, but um, they're all very aware. Like you, you come away with like a much, much um, broader understanding of just how gender is constructed through a variety of um, behaviors and activities in relation to this particular <laughs> animal, which has like repercussions, um, you know, uh, beyond just uh, human-animal interactions. And in terms of your own, I mean, it, as a curator in the art world, um, that term bitch or the how, how, I don't know how you navigate your way through the sexism that exists there. And I also think, you know, we are coming up to a very important year, which is the, the centenary of women's right to vote mm -hmm. and how you reflect, you know, how mm -hmm. we've come forward and the things we still have to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so just to go back to uh, Feminism Co. for a second, yeah. it's fun to think about now. Um, we also did quite a number of programs that looked at um, women's civic engagement um, for instance, we worked a lot with the Latina Initiative, which was in Denver at the time, working to um, involve uh, Latina women in um, uh, sort of political activity. Uh, there were artists that we had involved in that project as well. Um, there was one that we did on women in prison, which was really fascinating, and we had there was a judge there. There's a national system of courts known as like chrysalis courts, basically prostitution courts. And so you, there's a, there was a judge in Denver who's very well known for her. She created that court within the system and you ju she just worked with women who had been picked up on prostitution charges. Um, and then the, this is a redirection of, of their lives in um, through like a lot of social services, et cetera. And so it's, they dysfunction in through a different um, kind of um, uh, justice system that like kind of runs parallel to, to the rest of it. It's really fascinating. Um, and then I think we also, with that, we had a couple of psychologists who worked in the women's pr 
prison in Colorado and like those issues. And then we worked with a social entrepreneurship group and had their participants, these are women who had been released from prison and had no uh, sufficient like work experience to go back into the, the job market. And they came in to talk about their experience. That was really fantastic as well. I don't even know if we had an artist working with us at that for that particular one. Anyways, I'm getting off the subject. It has nothing no, to do with your answer. Well, uh, but, my yeah. answer. It's your answers, yeah. not mine. But like generally, yeah. I, you know, if I look back at these programs, it is a form of popular feminism. And mm-hmm. as much as I like love the academic world and I've been successful there and I, I enjoy the uh, sort of esoteric nature of that sort of research, I also like very comfortable as a populist. And I like yes. popular feminism too. I do think it's like a really important point of entry mm-hmm. for um, most people, men and women, um, to get involved. And uh, that was sort of a good working out of it. Like what could it look like, you know, in a live format? Right. And it's, no, I find it very stimulating and fascinating. And that's why I haven't even gotten to any questions yet about the Museum of Arts and Design. Mm-hmm. But I, I imagine that other artists, I am an artist, so mm-hmm. I imagine other artists would find conversations or engagements with you also stimulating. And I know you've the curator, are you the, the curator of, um, what is it, uh, Marilyn Mint or whatever. I was wondering, yeah. mm-hmm. um, are, are you having some of these discussions before or while work is being made? Because I, I see it as inspiring, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, so um, I'm not sure how to answer that. I feel like people find me, mm-hmm. you know, especially when it comes to artists. Like, of mm-hmm. course, I also do a ton of research and keep, like every curator, you keep like a Rolodex in your head of like, oh yeah, I that's interesting work. Someday I'll figure out where I'm going to put mm-hmm. that or what exhibition I'm going to use it for. So mm-hmm. there's that version of it. Mm-hmm. And then once you call up those names, mm-hmm. a good example would be the show with Miriam Shapiro. So I had nine contemporary artists and I started thinking about like, oh yeah, I'm interested in that person, that person, that person. Oh, I saw that person's work two years ago. That will work great. Then you start reaching out to them and kind of cultivating a relationship. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's true it always requires, at least an exhibition like that, when you're going to use the word decorative in the title, mm-hmm. you're, there's going to have to be a conversation about that because mm-hmm. any artist is going to have to, or is going to wonder, like, do I want my work associated? What is the point of that term? Um, how is it being positioned? And how am I going to be positioned like in relation to that? So these were artists who I knew already were um, interested in, in that term and, and the way it marginalizes art. And they themselves, I think, had... Um, strong feelings uh, or, or identification with like materials and practices that historically were marginalized in the first place, right? So um, we talked a lot about that and it didn't end up having, there. I didn't need to like uh, cultivate any of them really, they're on board from the beginning, but it, those conversations I think were inspiring um, and uh, led to like a reinvestment for for many of them like in their work in with around those terms like craft and and decoration so that can happen um for someone like marilyn minter she had a particular issue we wanted to work out which is that she's uh an artist who's very successful commercially successful but doesn't hadn't really received a lot of traction in the contemporary art or, or like the academic and scholarly mm-hmm. world and she was really looking for that and Part of it is because the work is, is quite beautiful mm-hmm. and spectacular. Uh, and I should say also tr- 
troubling too. It's right. Bit, <laughs> but that's the part yeah. that I think um, the beauty and spectacular sort of virtuosic style combined with the commercial success, um, I think created some suspicion um, on the part of a lot of scholars and critics too. Like the troubling aspects of it, which are all there, um, were often dismissed or were like this, the, the, the sort of surface of those works often, um, I think, deflected that. So that exhibition was really about repositioning her, trying to, to open up a conversation that looks specifically at those more troubling aspects and allow her to um, speak more as the artist that she sees herself as, like someone who's critically looking at you know, the representation of the female not, body. Not and, celebrating violations or things no, like that. No, not at all. Struggles. She doesn't see herself that no, way. No, of course yeah, not. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for, so that was like it's a specific intellectual then, problem, yeah. right, that we were trying to address. There was a show that I co-curated with Nora Burnett Abrams of um, Singin' and Goody's work. Um, this one right there with that catalog. Oh, yes. And so that... That was a exhibition that we had both wanted to do for a long, long time, and we knew Senga, um, and it took many years to just find a point or get on her calendar and find space to do it. It toured to five um, sites, and in the process of that happening, her career just like really exploded. Now it was, it was already. Um, there was already this period of kind of rediscovery of her work, and so we hit it just at the right time. And so that, you know, that's also, there's a specific agenda there to like make that work visible again um, and give a much, much fuller picture of what this artist has been doing for 35 years. So um, I guess every exhibition is different in terms of your, your goals and objectives. My name is Katherine Capristo and I am an art history student at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. I found Lisa Alter's discussion quite fascinating as I just finished studies myself on the modernist and postmodernist movements of art. For years I've tried to find the relationship between art and object and a concrete definition of what art truly means. Alter's comment about objects having a message of activism struck me. Art is about changing lives and perspectives, and not about a concrete definition of what art is. Authors' work and studies have made this quite clear. In their creation of objects as art that are sometimes used as commodity, artists seek to upend tradition and discover themselves and their socio-political beliefs while engaging in what may appear as mundane or borderline artistic activities. I also greatly look up to author's practice of curating and how she seeks to find connections between artists and their messages and their themes. This is something that is always fascinating me as I continue to dip my toes into the water of learning about curation and also, quite frankly, learning about art itself. Author's practice deeply inspires me and I love all that she has done for the Museum of Arts and Design as well as her other projects. I hope to someday put my similar passion into art and move and educate those who take interests and hopefully change their lives. I'd like to go back to this discussion of decoration and how that's a charged word. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and of course, it's seen differently in different cultures. I yep. live in Paris and mm -hmm. I don't know it's complicated because in some ways France has a kind of a acceptance of sexism mm -hmm. but on the other hand I think and I might be wrong but this has just always been my impression 
that the decorative arts or decorative elements or art for beauty's sake that mm -hmm. had like you said become mm -hmm. unfashionable or something is something mm -hmm. that's still like part of our culture a lot you know fashion industry or whatever yeah um, but I don't know you know how you contrast that with America you know so like we respect things that are decorative we don't yeah. see it as bad to be yeah. beautiful or whatever I think the problem in the American context is that it became a word that was used um, as a term of dismissal and exclusion in um, the post World War II era and, and it was used very explicitly by critics with a lot of power such as Clinton Greenberg right as yeah, a term yes. of dismissal so mm -hmm. Um, it you know uh, you run across it in criticism of the time um, where it is uh, just uh, you use it to, to, to categorize something as like a lesser form of art it's not quite yeah. art it's something that you hang on the wall to match with your sofa mm. it's a pretty like girl that. who must be stupid or something yeah. yeah it has no intellectual content it can also be described as um, too detail-oriented or myopic, too precious, um, way, way, way too feminine. Like these are all terms also that associate uh, or circle around craft, like the mm -hmm. term craft, yeah. and they always circle around. Um, they circle around femininity in general, right? Because mm -hmm. women are often um, sort of um, positioned as like a decorative object. It's, you know, like the the terrible um, sort of cliches of the, somebody's like. Where did I see this recently? It was in the newspaper where someone described two women he was with as his bracelets, right? You know oh. those kinds of things. Yeah. We're all and familiar. Replaceable. Yeah, the same looking. Yeah, yeah, we're all familiar with those yeah. those kinds of um, terms and associations. And so I think in the American context, when you it, it really really was a term to fear. You, you just didn't want it to be applied to your work. And there's every once in a while you find an artist um, who's talking about his or her work. It could be Ava Hess, it could be Robert Morris. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of other big modernists of the time where they will use it like, the last thing I want to do is create something decorative. So it was a term that people, the, the artists of that generation were very familiar with and mm -hmm. did see it as like anathema. Mm -hmm. So that's why you have this really fascinating recuperation of the term um, mm -hmm. when uh, in the, the early feminist work of the, the, the 1970s where they know it's a they know that it, it's associations with femininity and it's the way it's used to dismiss um, uh, a wide range of creative activity as not art, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of that happens to be things that women produced and still mm -hmm. do. So for them, it, that recuperation has a political, you know, it's a form of, of activism and it's a way they're going to intervene in the history of art and these hierarchies. Um, they also know that these hierarchies um, that we think of as between like art and craft or decoration, they just mirror broader social hierarchies of gender and race, right? Even mm -hmm. outside of that world. So they're looking to, to put it all together to see it as this, this system or this structure that needs to be dismantled or at least deflated in some way, make it visible as like an ideological um, position. So that's that's where it becomes really interesting, this term. And, and now, um, you find I find the term used in this political way all the time, and I'm not sure. I think a lot of a lot of artists who do that understand its its roots and origins in in like feminist art um, of the 1970s, but not always. It's that's interesting. 
So let's look. So your your fascinating, you know, path of an academic curator. It brings you. You are. We didn't talk about too much about San Francisco, but it brings you here to the Museum of Arts and Design. Mm -hmm. And let's discuss. You know, it's a very. Uh, when was it founded? In the fifties. Fifty six. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The history of this uh, interesting museum and, mm -hmm. and what uh, what what you are bringing to it through your curation. Mm -hmm. So I can tell you a little bit about the history. Uh, the founder is Aileen Osborne Webb. Um, there's a previous kind of iteration of the museum that was a store. Um, and then it became, uh, then she founded the museum uh, again to support artists working in um, traditional craft media, ceramics, fiber, wood, glass. and. Um, also to just support a like emerging movement which was known as the studio craft movement um, that would develop in, in the, the 50s. But the museum itself, uh, its exhibition history is way, way broader than that and I think more interesting than just mid-century modern mm -hmm. or the studio craft movement. Um, there was a director here by the name of Paul Smith who was instrumental in the exhibition vision of the 60s and 70s um, that really cut across a variety of, of um, forms. So he was, of course, committed to historic craft media, but he also did exhibitions on um, indigenous craft. He was very interested in what we might think of as heartland or folk craft. Um, and so you saw a, a wide variety of, of um, like handmade things, right? A sort of defense and elevation of handmade things. But he also did like amazing uh, immersive exhibitions. There was one called Feel It, where you would move uh, or have this experience in these constructed spaces. There was one called Contemplation Environments, which also, again, was um, looking at uh, counterculture and uh, design and architecture that was to create these um, kinds of new experiences through space. He did the first exhibitions on food as art. There was one that's yeah. called like Breads. <laughs> um, he did some of the first exhibitions. Uh, well, there was one called Furs and Feathers, which was mm -hmm. an exhibition about artists who use animal materials. And as far as I know, the, uh, the public programming for that included the first panel on like the ethics of, of artists using animal materials. Um, there were performance-based uh, exhibitions that included Fluxus projects. There was one on uh, a big exhibition on plastics. I mean, it's really amazing the work that he did. And it and so the museum, historically for me, is part of a, a downtown like um, not quite downtown, but you know, a New York avant-garde scene. Um, it's just that it was dedicated to these particular you know, like artists working in these these historically. Yeah. Um, marginalized materials and it continues to do that it's mm -hmm. never that that sort of um, mission is, has never changed but the art world changes and artists um, uh, of course are, are always responding to that and creating that change and the work looks different too mm -hmm. so I think there's there's always uh, room for expansion the museum historically did not look at craft um, outside of what you might think of as more narrow mid-century modern um, circles and uh, like a global craft 
So what I'm getting at is that art, like exhibitions about counterculture craft or feminist craft were not part of this history. It was really just seen as slightly too outside or not really recognized um, in the same way. And those are the kinds of exhibitions that I want to do here, like just expand yeah. this concept of craft even even, even wider to look at um, practices that because they are so associated uh, or they're seen as so outside the art world, whether it's mm -hmm. um, counterculture forms of craft or domestic forms of craft, mm -hmm. um, you can't somehow, like the, the museum environment isn't an appropriate place, like I just, that doesn't make any sense to us anymore. Right? Yes. Those 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 traditions are just as vital. Yeah. Um, and so those and what they tell us about how we live. Yes. Yeah, exactly. yeah. But I do think there was a time when when artists working in these traditional craft mediums um, really needed and tried hard to distinguish themselves from that kind of everyday craft, right? Mm -hmm. Like that was in, in order to be taken seriously as artists, they needed to just disavow that that part of craft history. Mm -hmm. Now that just you just don't there's no reason to take that position anymore um, because the relationship that the contemporary art world has to these mediums has dramatically changed. Yes, and, and speaking of you were talking about a kind of immersive programming and of um, your projects today, you also have great uh, education initiatives and I think also of the, the, the art studio program, which mm -hmm. I think is a, is a wonderful mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, so that's always been part of the, the museum, Artists in Residence. And um, they're here seven days a week. It's a competitive program. We look at many, many applications and find artists who are interested in interfacing mm -hmm. with the public because mm -hmm. they, um, uh, their studios are always open. Mm -hmm. And anybody in the museum can go and just talk to them, mm -hmm. um, look at what they're doing. Uh, they're usually selected. They're selected for lots of different reasons, but one of them is that they're working in a medium um, that's related to the exhibition mission here mm -hmm. um, or the mission of the museum itself and it is something that they can um, make visible right mm -hmm. the process itself to mm -hmm. um, visitors so you can yeah you just can go in and sit down and talk to them about what they're making and how they do it and um, have a conversation and you also have Arts Reach and, and Mad Lab. Right, so those are also major programs of the education department that have always been very successful. You probably want to talk to one of them about <laughs> right. details of that. But you could, yeah, just an overview, I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then... Um, They're working, at, is it K-12 with the Arts Reach or no? It's uh, younger, so high schools. Um. Well, there's two different programs. There's mm -hmm. students who come into the museum and we'll work with educators here and um, make projects or make art. But then there's also a program we have that's outreach and mm -hmm. it is for students that have been redirected into alternative high schools. Mm -hmm. So that's also a really important program that Matt has um, done for a long, long time. And it's, it's successful too. Um, and this, for a lot of these students, it's, um, they talk about it as their first, you know, something that is positive in their life, that's transformative for them. And I would say probably for many of them, the first opportunity they've had to think of themselves as creative people. Uh, no, it's, it's one the, the first steps to, because fear or that feeling you have the 
there's not a place for you or something. It's mm-hmm. so important. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, I really love those projects. Mm-hmm. I say, no, you can. You're mm-hmm. welcome here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I should say, speak a little bit about the building because this is an iconic building. And yeah. How, yes. Okay, so I should have um, <laughs> looked up the architect and his name escapes oh, me at the moment, yes, but Clo- you know who it is. Clo- 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 I, it's, I can't pronounce oh, you it. Oh, yes. you mean the, um, the redo. Yes, so the, the redo. redo is Clo- yes. Yeah, yes. Is the, um, it's hard to pronounce. Brad Clofields? Yes, yeah. that is his firm. Okay, um, Allied Works Association? Yeah, but I'm thinking of the original architect oh, who... Yes. Um, I can. I, I there's a you know there's a New Yorker article about this building that's yes. absolutely fascinating, mm-hmm. um, because the original occupant Huntington, what was his name, Hunting Hartford Huntington Hartford I can't even remember now, yes. um, lived here, huh. and there was like you know there was like a private disco at the, um, on the fir- the top floor, and then he had a number of galleries. He called it the Museum of Modern Art. Oh, okay. He was in competition with MoMA. They eventually sued to make him you know cease and desist and his whole um argument was he was he was a very conservative player he believed in figurative art yeah um he was against abstraction and so this was like some counterweight uh, to moma of course that didn't last very long but um and then it went through many other iterations um that i'm not that familiar with and the museum moved here um you'd have to fact check this but i'm pretty sure it was 2007 yeah made the move. 2000 oh they said 2008 but 2008 okay yeah <laughs> yeah and then that that the name change also museum of arts and design yes. is associated with this building yes mm-hmm. because it had been before the museum of yes. it started out museum of contemporary crafts which is mm-hmm. fascinating to see that word contemporary there mm-hmm. so early on yes. and then um american craft museum and then museum of arts and design yeah and i, I love the, the the new design i mean i know it, it's mm-hmm. It's able to, to house them, and I don't know in comparison to the previous building, but it's more space. Of course, yeah. like everybody, everyone's museum, you wish you had twice as much or three mm-hmm. times as much space. So it's tight, it, um, but one of the things we hear from um, or hear about from our, our visitors all the time is that it's a gem and they can see every show and not leave exhausted. Yes. So for New York, that's, yeah. <laughs> I think that. People appreciate that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's important, and I think that uh, we're we're looking forward to exploring more inside. Um, but we should talk some about you. You mentioned um, upcoming exhibitions. There's Vera makes a scarf. Mm-hmm. Um, Anna Sui or just Anna Sui. Yeah. Yeah. So Anna Sui opens. Um, there's the Burke Prize. So that's a prize for um, a young artist working in craft media that mm-hmm. is supported one uh, by uh, a board member. Marian Burke. Um, following that, we have an exhibition by the British stained glass artist Brian Clark. Um, and also, uh, uh, shortly after that, another uh, American glass artist, Beth Lippman. Does my mind go further than that right now? I'd have to look on the calendar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I guess that's already. Yeah. Yes. But it's interesting as I. I'm reading about, I'm looking forward to, I don't know if I will be in the city then, but that you're also with a a museum like this, I guess with Vera Makes a Scarf, that you you invite people into the process, I guess, of making scarves and this kind of art. Oh, so the programming for Vera, um, yeah, I have just, I haven't 
I don't know what the workshops are going to be, but it probably will be something related to pattern making mm -hmm. or like uh, repeats within mm -hmm. patterns, um, uh, botanical drawing, I mean, things that motivated her, um, mm -hmm. I think will probably might be what the workshops look like. The programming, um, we're going to do some in-gallery work with drag queens who are going to give docent tours. Mm -hmm. So that's a that's a, a kind of relationship to the exhibition that I wanted. In other words, I wanted a playful tone that could kind of just own Vera. You know, mm -hmm. Newman is a fascinating figure in the history of design entrepreneurialism. Mm -hmm. She was commercially successful. Um, but her market was like a, a middle market, particularly uh, women working in the home and then um, female, like young professionals. Um, I don't want to turn her into some like precious artist or the world's greatest designer. Um, she was really comfortable with that middle market um, and embraced it and owned it. And I think we should just be able to do that too. Right? Yeah. And part of it is uh, she's got a huge cult following and there is a kind of kitsch revival of the work. And, and I think to, to um, we're not making fun of it. We're just um, enjoying it on that uh, kind of campy level. And how is the museum, in terms of like these exhibitions that are about um, fashion designers, mm -hmm. um, how is the approach different or what, how do you see that the approach to say other fashion museums in yeah. the presentation? I think it? for MAD, um, so we had really interesting success with a, with a show about counterculture craft called Counter Couture. Mm -hmm. These were handmade garments made by a variety of counterculture players. So people who were in religious cults, people who were um, rock stars, uh, people who made their own shoes, um, uh, people who embroidered full, you know, full-on denim outfits, um, anybody who handmade their clothes, and there, a lot of people handmade their, their clothes at that time because this was the last generation of, of um, young people who learned how to sew in school, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then you also had some couture elements, like uh, artists who were associated with the counterculture but were making these really 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 high-end garments um, that was a super successful show for us because we could talk about the handmade connected to a broader social phenomenon and people's uh, decisions about the kinds of lives they wanted to live um, which involved clothing and the mm -hmm. remaking of clothing and the presentation of themselves wearing mm -hmm. specific kinds of clothing um, that was associated with like a political you know, agenda or a social revolution. Mm -hmm. So that was really successful for us. And a number of um, uh, fashion designers came to see it and were mm -hmm. really, really compelled. I mean, they came many times. Anna Sui is one of them. That's mm -hmm. how we made the contact with her. I think she came to the show five or six times. Mm -hmm. And um, and then, so we thought about that and we it occurred to us, we don't want to we have no interest in competing with like the Med Costume Institute or FIT or anything. We don't have those collections, right? Yeah. So we're looking for very particular approaches to fashion um, that matter to our audience and the mission of the museum. So for Anna Sweet, 
this is a person who still owns her own company, right? It's very rare. Yeah. And is it is working as a kind of atelier still. And so mm-hmm. that's great for us. We do mm-hmm. see her as like a design entrepreneur that has a connection to handcraft. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's perfect for our audience. That's what they're interested in. So mm-hmm. for so our niche has to be something like that. Yeah. I, I, no, it is very interesting because I thought, oh, so... Uh, you have a, an interesting aspect because, well, if the crafts and design has not always been put up on such a high pedestal, mm-hmm. well, it is closer to us too. Mm-hmm. And we live with it. We take right. it home with us. Right. And so for so you know we do have the name design in our our, mm-hmm. our title, mm-hmm. and that's one way we've been able to reach a broader public audience is mm-hmm. through clothing and through fashion as a form of design mm-hmm. that people are extremely comfortable with. They make design design decisions, aesthetic decisions on a daily basis. They mm-hmm. they might not know understand it in that way mm-hmm. or they might feel like, oh, art is I, I don't have access to that or it's not for me. But they actually make these these aesthetic decisions all the time through clothing. So it's that's a good way for us to just create a more accessible opening for broader discussions about about art, craft, and, and design. I'm, and I'm sure that um, the designers appreciate the, the, the feedback of the social aspect of, of their art, which can seem so mm-hmm. much a business. Right. <laughs> yes. So for them to be in a museum is a big deal because they can just focus on their work as a form of art yeah. or as a form of craft and design in ways that... Um, get commodified, let's say, mm-hmm. outside of the museum in ways that are probably are, are less satisfactory to them okay. in terms of their identity as an artist. The artist, <clears throat> the artist you were referring to before, the kind of the kitschy campy, mm-hmm. the, what was the artist's name? Oh, Vera Newman. Okay. Yeah. You said there's you didn't want to make her work precious. Yeah. Um, would you describe it as pure like I wonder if in the future when we look back at exhibits such as those Mm -hmm. is that the lens we're going to look at it through I don't know I think I know what you're talking about she when she went went into business she was able to create a company that she totally and completely owned and um, from like from the moment of design and conception all the way through production so she had her, she, first of all, every single design is based on, a, on a, an original watercolor. She had her own um, screen printing studio where the screens were made based on the paintings. She had her own chemist for color and she had her own color lab. She controlled all that. She had her own printing facilities. So uh, in this business, she worked with her husband. I don't want to exclude him here. Um, there's a directness to it and like an ownership that she had. There's no middle person, right? Who's calling the shots or like um, a situation where everything is outsourced or you can't, um, you don't really have control because you've, uh, as a designer, because you've got this other uh, group of people who are part of the company who are gonna make decisions about what's gonna be commercially successful. She would do anything, <laughs> and she would. Be, she she was able to take amazing risks with design. I mean, I think the material is fantastic. I I am part of the cult mm-hmm. following of mm-hmm. Vera Newman. She just like the industry doesn't work that way anymore. So part of what the appeal is is like, wow, look what this person did mm-hmm. at a time when you could pull this off. Mm-hmm. Um, and she she also believed in. 
she referred to it as, as a Bauhaus philosophy of this combination of art, craft, and industry. And like you could produce fantastic design that was accessible to a middle market at a lower price point by using a manufacturing uh, or incorporating manufacturing into your artistic practice. Like she truly believed that. Um, and so that that's also what inspired her to, to just turn herself, you know, as an artist into a kind of design entrepreneur. Like how am I gonna bridge that gap between the art world and the commercial world? She was really successful at that. And, um, but I think in the, you know, she's not integrated into American design history at all. Mm. I think a lot of that just has to do, one, her gender, and when she um, uh, was working, uh, like her generation. And then also commercial success is just often a liability for mm. your historic legacy when it comes to like scholarly um, histories. Um, it's no different from, um, you know, someone like Marilyn Minter, that became yeah. a liability for her too. So I think the combination of those things for um, for Vera is why she's left out or just sort of disappeared. What's fascinating is that people haven't forgotten her. I mean, anybody who's over the age of 45 um, would probably recognize the name. I happen to grow up in a house with a lot of Vera products, but I, it's not unusual for me to meet people who are like, oh yeah, I had those sheets, or oh yeah, my mom had that scarf. Mm -hmm. So, um, there is a nostalgic appeal, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is partly what we're getting at, right? Mm -hmm. And then we want to tap into that, um, the sort of broad cult following that she has, which is partly about a campy re-embrace of a lot of that design material. So, but back to your question, like the preciousness, you could do a version of this show where every scarf is framed and hung on a wall like a painting, right? Mm -hmm. But I was like, that's just so not who she was. Like, I just want to show a gazillion scarves. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I want to show hundreds of linen napkins because they're fantastic and we don't have to pretend that they're something that they're not. They were things that were used in everyday life. But And for her, that was a big deal. That's how mm -hmm. you would integrate um, art and design into um, mm -hmm. people's ordinary lives. In your decision to have drag queens involved, yeah. is that more a play on, on camp or is it more a play on gender or is it both? Probably both. Okay. Probably both. And they're, they've responded really positively. I mean, first of all, there are, um, there's one person we're working with who channels Vera, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the persona. Um, <laughs> there's others who know the work really well. One of them, uh, one of the people I'm thinking of, um, I won't say the name because we don't have like confirmed contracts yet or anything like that. But uh, he started as a designer. He's like, oh, I know this work really well. I'm totally into this, right? So it's just amazing to, to and they're performers and they, the idea of the docent tour mm -hmm. is also something that they just cannot wait to oh. play with, right? So it should be good. No, it should be very <laughs> good. I, I love how you, 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 you move outside of what we strictly think of, well, what is the museum? What is yeah. art? So I, th I think it's, it's really wonderful. Well, thank thank you so much, Alyssa. Oh, thanks for yeah, thanks for, for the conversation. Um, yes, for honoring um, these uh, design and crafts and making sure that these voices do not disappear. They're honored as they should, and uh, we look forward to your future projects, celebrating your contracultural um, 
uh, art is a countercultural, I don't know how you define it exactly. <laughs> um, thank you for everything you're doing here at the Museum of Arts and Design and for adding your voice to the creative process. Thanks for having me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Catherine Capristo. Digital Media Coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Winter Time was composed by Nicholas Anadolas and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for a review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.